five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Hey, space enthusiast. We're back from a short summer break and we have a few exciting episodes coming up. Our guest this week is literally building a lunar rover. Do I really need to say anything else to get you curious? Jared Matthews is the CEO and founder of Astrolab based in Hawthorne, California. He was previously at SpaceX and also at JPL where he worked on Mars rovers. So come join us to hear all about planetary rovers. Enjoy. My name is Raphael Rodkin, and I'm an investor and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only, and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by Nanoavionics, a satellite manufacturer and mission integrator. Their technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life right here on Earth, such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation, or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out and also check out my episode with the CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I'm an alumnus of the International Space University. ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide. Check them out at isunet.edu. And just some final things before we start the episode about ourselves. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as Apple or Spotify. If you want us help expand our work, you can do so and support us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. And we'll also put that link in the episode notes. And lastly, you can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Hey, space enthusiasts, welcome back to another episode of the podcast. And we have another space entrepreneur here with a very exciting space startup company. This is going to be about lunar mobility. It's the first time uh, we're having a business model like that. So very excited to hear about it. And our very qualified guest to talk about it is the CEO and founder of Venturi Astrolab, Jared Matthews. Welcome, Jared. Thank you. Uh, my pleasure to be here. Cool, Jared. And usually we kick off these episodes when we have an entrepreneur by by asking you to just give an elevator pitch on the company, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, what Astrolab is creating is what I think is the next logical piece of equipment in a post-Starship world. So if you imagine the very near future when uh, not only Starship, but other large lunar landers like Blue Origins are delivering tens to hundreds of tons of cargo to the lunar surface, at a regular cadence. Uh, what we're building at Astrolab is really the last mile solution. Um, so all that cargo that's gonna be landed on the moon needs to get out off of the landers and distributed around uh, particularly the lunar south pole, which is where we anticipate the uh, majority of industrial activity will be concentrated. And just to like, I guess, fleshed it out a little bit. So last mile, I guess probably everybody gets the concept that's like on Earth, you kind of ship stuff by the container ship somewhere that would be the equivalent of a starship. And then you have like trucks basically going the last mile. But what does last mile mean on the moon? Like what's your best guess? Are we talking sort of like five miles, 50 miles, a thousand miles? Well, I think, uh, you know, I think you're going to see, um, like I said, a lot of activity concentrated at the lunar south pole, you know, south of 85 degrees uh, south latitude, particularly because of the, you know, concentration of interesting resources, particularly water ice, um, and also the favorable um, environmental conditions there because uh, you have a shorter, relatively shorter lunar uh, night or, or period of prolonged darkness uh, than you do if you're at, at or near the equator on the moon. Um, and that's fundamentally easier to to work with. Um, so if if you're uh, if you're operating at the equator on the moon, basically you don't see the sun for a period of up to two weeks, and so that's very hard for equipment to survive that through that. Whereas at the South Pole, you know you can have uh, the the darkness uh, as short as about 150 hours, and so uh, I think you're gonna like I said see a concentration of activity around the South Pole. And, and uh, but that activity will still span uh, an area that is a, a circle uh, that is about you know several hundred kilometers in diameter. Understood. And so I guess one other side effect of the day and the night, correct me if I'm wrong, is it's, it's probably quite an extreme temperature range, right? It's probably for memory something like 200 degrees temperature span, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it can you know it can be uh, 
colder than liquid nitrogen, hotter than boiling water, particularly for systems that are reliant on solar energy, you know, to recharge their batteries like our rover is, um, you know, going through a prolonged period of darkness is, is really challenging because you're, you're basically using your energy um, during that period that's stored in your batteries. You're using it to keep, um, you know, your systems above their survival temperature uh, while, while, while you can't see the sun. So, you know, that problem gets a whole lot easier, the shorter the darkness period is. And so if we kind of were to think, just trying to place your uh, a product, I, I think it's called the flex, right? Yes. Sort of yeah. if you were trying to place it in sort of like, let's call it a broader genealogy of like off planet mobility vehicles and uh, stuff that springs to my mind and probably other people's mind is sort of like, you know, the, the Apollo rover, right? And then yeah. I guess the uh, the Soviets had uh, one, I forgot the name, the Lukard. Lunacard, yeah. Yeah, Lunacard, exactly. One that Richard Garriott, I think, bought, bought, a, bought one. And um, uh, like the, the Martian, like the Perseverance, and I think you actually worked on one of them on Curiosity, if I saw that correctly. Yes. Um, Ch Chinese rovers, which even have been, I think, on the on the other side, the far side of the moon. Where where does the, the flex kind of fit into this sort of broader genealogy tree of uh, off planet um, mobility? Sure, vehicle? that's a, that's an excellent excellent question. Um, yeah, so flex actually the name stands for flexible logistics and exploration rover, um, and really what that name is meant to convey is the versatility of the platform. And so what makes it different from, you know, the rovers you mentioned, um, uh, like Curiosity, which I worked on um, at my time at JPL, is, um, you know, all the rovers that have come before have fundamentally had a, a fixed set of equipment, you know, that they were landed with. They, they landed with all the instruments that they were ever going to have, and so they they fundamentally had a, a you know a fixed utility. They could only do a certain number of things. Flex is different in that it has a number of modular interfaces on it um, that allows us to swap out cargo uh, instruments implements um, over time, so that you you end up with a dynamic utility and can serve a really wide range of use cases and and customers. So uh, it's. It's sort of like, uh, you know, if you think about like a John Deere tractor, right, uh, that can have a, a, a digging attachment or a mowing attachment um, and, and can do a wide number of things uh, because it has these kind of modular interfaces. Uh, that's what we're doing on Flex. Or maybe the other comparison I thought of, um, and tell me if that's right or wrong, is sort of like staying in space, sort of like satellites. It almost sounds like you're separating like the satellite bus from the payload and the payload could be like different types of payloads. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, it really goes back to the, that model. Um, we, we have, you know, very much been inspired by how you move things efficiently on earth. You know, as you said, you have ships, you know, crossing the ocean doing the long haul transportation and they're, they're filled with intermodal, you know, standardized shipping containers. Um, and then at the port, you have equipment, trucks, trains, um, you know, forklifts that are really designed to work with those intermodal containers and take them the last mile. And so uh, that, that's that's the fundamental innovation here is that we're, we're really yeah, separating the payload from the mobility platform so that the payload can be dynamic. And, and we think that's um, appropriate for this coming era, uh, you know, this post starship or post, you know, blue, blue moon era where, um, you know, it, the, the scale at which you can land equipment is so vastly different than what has, you know, existed before that it really demands this new approach. You know, it makes no sense in a post-Starship world to make a bespoke rover for every mission, which has historically been the case, right? Um, Starship and, and, and Blue Moon will afford the ability for us all to kind of achieve economies of scale by taking this more modular, you know, intermodal approach. And in terms of sort of the, um, the payloads, um, I guess it's also, I could also describe it um, again with the satellite analogy as like a, almost like a hosting model, right? Um, but that kind of leads to my question. The, the, the payloads, are you envisioning sort of coming up with the payloads um, yourselves at Astrolab? Or is there also the possibility that like you're going to give basically like a user guide, a spec sheet to the client? Like, let's say, look, this is how much mass you have. This is how much power you have. This is a lot of constraints. And as long as you fit within these constraints, you can put on whatever you want. Uh, yeah, the, the latter. So we, in fact, we've already published a payload user's guide that folks can download from our website right now, astrolab.space. Um, and um, no, our, our, our model is to, yeah, sell that capacity we have 
have on the rover to downstream customers. And so um, in, in March of this year, we announced that we signed a launch service agreement with SpaceX to go on a Starship to the, to the moon um, as soon as mid-2026. And on that mission, you know, we have up to 1,500 kilograms of capacity to take on the rover. And so we're now selling that capacity to downstream customers to go with us on that mission. Um, 1,500 kilograms is a lot. Uh, and it's also a large volume as well. It's three cubic meters uh, that we have for customer payload. So, um, you know, for your for your listeners, uh, the best kind of way to visualize that is it's about two times the, the volume and mass um, of a Ford F-150 pickup bed. So, you know, it's, you know, several refrigerators in size, uh, and we, we can parse that, uh, up and, and, and aggregate a number of, you know, customers into that volume. And that's what we're doing. And we've, we've already signed, uh, uh, several, um, agreements, you know, to downstream customers to go with us on this, this mission. Um, and we're going to announce the specifics of those, those soon, um, and it's the customer revenue that you know re- will help us recover the development and uh, launch costs for the rover. Fifteen hundred kilograms. It, it really yes. sounds uh, that's that's considerable. I mean, if I remember my sort of Apollo history correctly, I think the lunar rover, like the entire mass, was like a few hundred kilograms only, two or three hundred yes. from memory. It was around two two fifty or so, I think. Yeah, yeah. And the Curiosity rover, for example, was seven hundred and fifty kilograms. So it's twice two two times two times the mass of a Curiosity rover. We're jumping around a little bit now, but so out of curiosity, the um, this kind of scaling up, so like you know Apollo rover previous experience, uh, two hundred or two hundred fifty kilograms. Um, I don't know how much the the, the Soviet or the Chinese ones um, what the mass was. I'm guess, I'm guessing yours is much bigger than the Soviet or the Chinese ones. Does that bring sort of any specific challenges, kind of like sizing the mass up so much in terms of I don't know, just uh, dealing with like the, the kind of tires you need or like uh, or when you're getting stuck in the sinking into the regolith or I, I don't know. Yeah, well, so so to give you a sense of scale, Flex is about the size of an SUV. Um, and it, it is the size it is because it's, uh, the biggest thing you can pass through the starship door. Um, okay. and they you know, the, re- the, the real idea here is to really, um, enhance that capability, you know, um, and, and, um, um, and, and, you know, really get the most out of, uh, the ability to land, you know, this hundreds of tons of, of cargo on the moon. Um, and, um, and so, you know, one of our cargo modules, like I said, is three cubic meters, 1500 kilograms, but you can fit about 30 of those on a single starship landing. And so, you know, it makes no sense to, to put wheels on every one of those. So you have a single Rover that's able to mobilize, you know, these containers individually. Um, and you know, the, the, the other kind of difference say to the, you know, as compared to the Apollo lunar Rover, the Apollo lunar Rover wasn't, uh, you know, strictly even a, a, a spacecraft or a robot in, in, in the sense that we think of it today and that uh, it didn't really even have a computer. You know, it was a it was a battery connected by switches, you know, to the joystick uh, and, and the motors. Um, and it was really only designed for a really limited uh, use on the moon, just just a few days of the Apollo mission. So it was like, you know, very much a it's much more like a golf cart than a than a rover. Um you know, Flex is a is a robotic platform. It has a six degree of freedom robotic arm. It has a multitude of cameras, and you know it can be driven by people, so people can actually ride on it. And um, but it equally can be remotely operated from Earth, and the and it will you know survive years uh, on the lunar surface as well. And so, besides being directly driven by people or remotely operated, um, will there also be sort of will at some point in time will it be like autonomous? Well, I guess for that we will also need like navigation capabilities um, on the moon, like an like a equivalent of a GPS or something. Yeah. So we, you know, um, we're it's designed to be what we call um, operated with supervised autonomy. So there, there's still a human in the loop, um, but it's not it's not like driving an RC car, you know, where you're directly joysticking it from Earth. Um, it's more like the operators are uh, establishing goals for the rover um, that, that it, it, it attempts to reach autonomously, um, but the operators are still there, you know, with kind of eyes on the terrain, so to speak, um, but they're not commanding every, you know, every turn that the rover is doing. Um, kind of like sounds like similar to sort of like remote uh, drone operators or something with a joystick and yeah so exactly and this is this is fundamentally how you know the the Mars rovers are operated and it's that's driven largely because of the the time delay it's you know it's impossible to 
joystick a rover on Mars because the signal could take up to 20 minutes to 20 get minutes. To, to Mars. Um, and then the, you know, the picture coming back would take another 20 minutes by which time you would have driven off a cliff or something. Uh, the, the time delay, you know, from earth to the moon is much shorter on the order of a second or two. Um, but it, that's still enough to be dangerous. And so, um, and then also, you know, in the context of operating these rovers for years, you know, we, we, we want to have, you know, sufficient autonomy to make that, um, operation not require a, a whole room full of people, you know, 24 seven. And so autonomy is definitely important. And so speaking of um, driving off a cliff, I think we, from memory, we, we just had that almost with the um, the Indian, the Vikram rover. I think it was like getting very close to a crater and then the Indians had to backtrack to not drive into yeah. the crater. So is that, um, I mean, there's obviously a lot of craters on, on, on the moon. So what is, what are your sort of, um, how can I describe this? The kind of, how much of an off-road capability is there sort of, I don't know, in terms of like, you know, handling inclines and, and things like that. So yeah, Flex is also unique uh, as compared to historical rovers in that it has uh, what we call adaptive suspension. So um, things like, uh, you know, the, the Apollo Lunar Rover, the the JPL Mars Rovers, the, those all have passive suspension. Um, and uh, um, wh where Flex is different is it it can actively um, move its limbs up and down. So to let me just describe what Flex looks like. It's 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 four wheel uh, four wheel rover with four wheel drive, four wheel steering. Um, but each wheel is attached to a limb. That kind of rotates up and down, so we can raise and lower each wheel independently. And uh, what that allows us to do is, is several things: is we can we can, for example, keep the chassis level when we're traversing across the slope. Um, you so you you know you pick up the you raise the upslope wheels, you push down the downslope wheels, and the chassis stays level. Um, that's important and appreciated by human occupants. So if you have astronauts riding on board, they you know. It's much more comfortable for them to be upright, um, but it also, you know, enhances your stability or prevents you from rolling over, for example. Um, and uh, so, w with that adaptive suspension, you know, we're we're able to to climb slopes in excess of twenty degrees, um, and we're also able to, you know, in the instance where we get stuck in soft terrain, we can actually do. Um, uh, what we call push-pull locomotion, or maybe a, a easier way to think about it is like an inchworm, where you you break the back wheels, you roll the front wheels while also articulating your suspension, and you kind of inchworm your way out of a really bad situation. Um, and that that's been proven, uh, you know, to be very effective. Um, so yes, it has uh, basically the the ability to traverse extreme terrain. Um, it also has onboard hazard detection. So we have, uh, you know, a suite of sensors that are designed to identify hazards like rocks or craters um, and essentially prevent you from getting into the, to danger in the first place. Understood. And so let's briefly talk about, no, actually, sorry, let me take a step back. This is really interesting with the suspension. Of this. I guess this type of stuff, you could even, you could even to some extent test it on earth, right? If you go, I don't know, you're in the desert or something, I guess the ideal thing would be something like giant pit of like regular simulant, which there probably isn't anything big enough. Correct me if I'm wrong. Not even my JPL, maybe it is. Um, but yeah, can, can you test it on earth to some extent? Absolutely. And, and so actually we have, we've built a fully functional, uh, full scale terrestrial prototype of flex and, you know, I would encourage uh, your listeners to go check out astrolab.space. Lots of videos of uh, of it in operation on our website and our YouTube channel. Um, and yeah, we take it out to uh, a variety of locations here in California. Um, our, our favorite test location is a place called Dumont Dunes, um, which is a, a huge sand dune area um, that is near Death Valley. Um, and uh, yeah, we put it, put it through its paces. We go out to the field uh, roughly once a quarter. Uh, to try out new things, try out, um, you know, new hardware uh, and to continuously advance our, our software. If it's, uh, if it's really good uh, for getting out of mud as well, you maybe you can sell it to a Burning Man crowd. As well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it would be pretty great for uh, Burning Man, that's for sure. <laughs> so um, maybe it'd be interesting to kind of get some of the specs of the vehicle, you know, just like simple stuff like, you know, for like what's, what's, the, what's the range on the full battery? Like what kind of speed are we talking about? You know, sort of like some simple metrics. Uh, people can envision the vehicle a bit more. Yeah, so um, we're so we're designing it to be um, compliant with uh, NASA's 
requirements for what they call the Lunar Terrain Vehicle Services Program. Um, and uh, that's that's a program where um, they've actually put out a request for proposal, which we've responded to, and they're going to make an award later this year. Um, and, and the idea is that um, they're procuring mobility as a service for Artemis astronauts. Um, and uh, starting as, as early as 2028. Um, and uh, and the, the idea is that uh, these lunar terrain vehicles or LTVs uh, will, will transport Artemis astronauts when they're there and do you know, logistics and science when they're not there um, so that you know, you're getting utility kind of around the clock. Um, so uh, you know, those requirements dictate that you have to drive at least 15 kilometers an hour. Um, and that's equivalent to, to what the Apollo lunar rover could do. Um, in fact, the, the lunar speed record is, I believe, 17, 17 or 18 kilometers an hour um, set during the, the Apollo era. Uh, which uh, doesn't sound like a lot, but when you're in lunar gravity, um, is pretty a pretty exciting ride <laughs> uh, because you end up, you know, almost uh, spending as much time off the ground as you're on it uh, when you're, you know, bouncing around in one six gravity at that speed. Um, so we're actually designing Flex. You know, one of our goals is to set the new lunar speed record. So, <laughs> you know, we're we're designing it to go up to 20 kilometers an hour. Um, and, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, range, um, you know, it, it depends a lot on how, you know, aggressive your driving is. So if you're doing, you know, robotic, um, teleoperation, uh, you're going relatively slow. Um, uh, our goal is to cover at least six kilometers a day. Um, and, um, but if you're, if you have humans on board, you know, you, we, we're, we're designed to support it, uh, them driving it like they stole it. You know, we don't want, uh, the Rover performance to be a limiting factor for them. So, um, so they can drive it very aggressively for a full eight hour EVA, which the, the limitation there is just, uh, the resources in their spacesuits. And so I was going to ask about the spacesuits. So this is like the, um, Apollo Rover where they need like a full space exposure suit. Like there's no sort of yeah. like a life support system um, that the rover has, right? Exactly. Uh, it's an unpressurized rover. So yeah, the astronauts are wearing, wearing spacesuits. Now you could have additional consumables on the rover. You know, you could provide additional oxygen and additional energy for their uh, packs. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's very much unpressurized. And it, obviously the, the moon is sort of, I'm sure many of our listeners know already, the, the moon is kind of a harsh environment, right? We talked about the sort of like hundreds of degrees of temperature range, uh, between day and night. Um, you got a regolith, which is very abrasive. Um, it's, it's basically a vacuum, right? And, and there's a reasonable amount of radiation as well. So is that... I guess the vehicle must be set up to deal with all of that, right? And like the Apollo vehicles, I guess they've been basically driven around for probably a couple of days. I'm not much more than that, right? Um, on the other hand, on the other hand, the Mars the Mars rovers have been driving around for a long, long time. I guess. Um, I guess my question is sort of like with these kind of environments, like what what is kind of the lifetime for a vehicle like this? Yeah. Um, so. We're, you know, we're we're hoping that we can provide ten years of continuous service at the lunar south pole with one of these these rovers. Um, yes, the Apollo lunar rover. You know, it didn't it didn't even have a rechargeable battery. It had a, a primary battery. You know, that just depleted over the course of a, a few days. Um, and so, uh, yeah, our, our rover is very different, and that it has to, to has to recharge um, to survive longer. Um, the uh, you know, there's a big difference between your design lifetime and, and, you know, what, what you may survive, uh, you know, the JPL rovers, you know, the, I worked on spirit and opportunity as well. Um, you know, they had, they had a 90 day, uh, design lifetime and that's what they were qualified for. Um, but they ended up lasting, you know, opportunity lasted more than 10 years in the end. Um, and, uh, you know, curiosity is now, um, more than 10 years old. Um, and it, it had a one, one year design lifetime. So, um, you know, I, our expectation is, is that, you know, it will, it will last, you know, much longer than we're designing it to, but, you know, really the choosing a, choosing a design lifetime dictates how much testing you have to do, you know? Um, and so you have to be mindful of that, you know, uh, the, the requirements that are that you have to test basically four times, whatever your design lifetime is. So if you're designing a one-year rover, you have to put four years of testing into it. Um, so, um, so that's the trade there. And so this is obviously designed, um, as you already implied, to kind of survive the lunar nights, even the shorter ones. Um, is that something I must plead ignorance? Has that 
been done before with like uh, lunar vehicles like i don't know maybe the chinese left something during the night i don't remember yes yeah the, the chinese have demonstrated the ability to to survive the lunar night um you know um uh, the lunacod did um and uh as well um so it is possible um it's much easier uh you know if you have access to radioactive materials and can use uh you know waste heat from that uh which was both the, that was the case both for lunacod and and the chinese rovers as they had um radioactive heating units basically that uh um you know produced waste heat uh that, that kept them above their survival temperature um what we're trying to do is is do it with you know it, it uh without uh, making use of those those materials, and so our our approach is really that we have a huge amount of battery capacity, um, and um, you know, approaching what you would find in a Tesla, for example, uh, and the that that battery capacity is really driven by um, hunkering down, you know, the energy required to just hunker down and and kind of keep things warm through the night, um, not even you know. Uh, operating, uh, not not driving, just kind of sitting there. Uh, like I said, keeping things above their sur survival temperature. And so, is that a matter of so? So, just to be clear, you mentioned like you don't have any sort of like nuclear, like an RTG or anything like that. So, I Correct. guess you're relying on like um, just insu like passive like insulation or. Yeah, so we have multi-layer insulation uh, and we have heaters. So um, in the kind of the heart of, of the rover, um, where all the really temperature sensitive components are, um, you know, are, are in what we call a warm electronics box. So it's a well-insulated, you know, box essentially, uh, where the things that are particularly sensitive uh, to temperature, like the batteries, um, are, are kept at, at a, you know, inside a, a much tighter temperature band than what the outside is experiencing. And this is also something you're testing on Earth? Yes. So uh, here at our facility in Hawthorne, we have um, several thermal vacuum chambers um, that allow us to, to uh, replicate to a degree, um, you know, the environment we're going to find on the moon. So you pull a hard vacuum, you know, suck out all the air uh, and then cool it down to, you know, liquid nitrogen uh, type temperatures. Okay. And so is there any other, let's say, specific challenges of the lunar environment we haven't talked about, which are sort of interesting to keep in mind, which uh, you know, maybe something that uh, our typical listener is not thinking of? Yeah. I mean, you you did a good job kind of rattling off the big ones. Uh, the, the really abrasive dust, you know, and that that's because there is no weathering on the moon. There's no, there's no water, there's no wind to kind of uh, break up or round off you know, all the dust particles, all the, all the dust particles on the moon are created from impacts. And so it's kind of, uh, you know, really, really sharp um, particles, which is, you know, problematic for seals, you know, so especially in a robot where you have a lot of moving parts, uh, you know, wheels spinning, robot arm moving around, uh, that dust uh, is, is particularly problematic. Um, the dust is also electrostatic, so it can like stick to things uh, like your solar panel or your radiator uh, and, you know, change the, the thermal properties of your paint, for example. And so, you, you know, you might, um, uh, you know, overheat, uh, just because you're covered in dust. Um, and, uh, yes, hard vacuum radiation. Um, you know, it's, it's much easier in my opinion to design a Mars Rover than a, a lunar Rover, um, from an environmental perspective. Um, and, um, and, you know, one, one of our goals is to ultimately send flex rovers to, to Mars as well. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, that will be a relatively easier problem to solve than the one we're probably, we're solving now. Yeah. Another kind of key challenge is, you know, for a rover traveling this fast, uh, you really do need flexible tires. Um, so the Apollo lunar rover had flexible tires kind of made out of a uh, woven, uh, piano wire. Um, uh, whereas all the Mars rovers, Chinese rover, Lunacod, they all had, um, rigid tires, rigid wheels um, that did not deform. And that's that was acceptable because they were really, really slow driving. You know, they they move at a few centimeters per second. Um, and uh, whereas, uh, you know, the Apollo Luna Rover and Flex, uh, you know, driving very fast, you know, the um, so the tires are an important part of the suspension system uh, in that context. And so making um, a tire that is deformable at extreme temperatures is a is a really, really challenging problem. You know, you have to make it extremely durable as well to last many years. And, you know, there's no 
there's no AAA on the moon to come save you if you get a flat yeah, tire. Yeah, that's a good point. I was literally going to ask you this right now. So a couple of questions um, which you're already getting at. This so is one is like, well, like given those the, the environment, environmental conditions, are the tires really going to last ten years? And then if you have to swap the tires. And then it could also be that there's some sort of, you know, type of accident or something. You have to swap up the tires. Maybe you have to swap some other part, like part of the suspension or something. If that happens, is the vehicle just dead or is there some sort of self-repair robotic capability or something like that? There, 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 are, there are some things we can do um, robotically. There's, uh, there are other things that are kind of inherently redundant, um, you know, that, that uh, for example, our steering. We have four-wheel steering. If you were if you lost a steering actuator, um, for example, you could still carry on with two wheel steering, you know, for most operations, like a car does. Um, so there, there's elements like that. We we solve you know uh, as many of those solve for as many of those scenarios as we can think of. Um, but you know there's a there's a trade off in terms of um, adding com complexity and risk, you know, to accommodate some of these scenarios. So. Um, and what I think is really interesting about this this period that we're entering, where you know our, our hope is that the 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 magnitude and the cadence of you know the equipment going to the moon um, is such that it will drive the you know the price of access way down, like has happened in low Earth orbit. Um, and you know if if that happens, then um, it may make sense instead of instead of making a rover you know be uh, you know, 99.99999% reliable because you only get one shot at it and it costs billions of dollars to get it there, which is basically the case for the Mars rovers to date. Mars right? rovers, yeah. Um, you know, if, if you're able to, to send, you know, tens to hundreds of tons uh, and do so regularly, uh, you could make a slightly less reliable, you know, maybe 99.98% reliable rover and just send two. <laughs> Or yeah. if you have a, you know, it really does change the economics of of it, and um, and it also even when you're designing the, the the platform from the beginning, you know, the whole history of spaceflight has been has had mass efficiency as kind of the guiding principle, right? Like mm. you have to make everything as right. super yeah. light and efficient as possible, and that you know drives endless analysis and exotic materials and you know miniaturization of everything, which all drives costs, right? Um, in, in an era in which the the launch costs are are not so significant and the opportunities are more frequent, um, it, you can really flip that equation. Like stop stop worrying so much about a mass efficiency and start thinking about economies of scale, which is essentially what what we're doing. Is you know there's there's definitely a hit on our on flex to have this ability to swap out payloads from a if you if you only view the problem through the lens of mass efficiency, right? Having a separation interface between the rover and a payload is inefficient when only viewed through that lens. Um, but it makes a lot of sense in an era where, you know, the cadence of landing is high, the tonnage coming down is, is high. Yeah. I mean, this is sort of similar to launch, right? The use, reusability of rockets only starts making sense once you hit a cadence. That's why like the Falcon 9 makes economic sense and the space shuttle never got there, right? Exactly. Say. Yeah. In terms of the, the charging, so it, it's batteries, right? Is it like sort of standard lithium ion like yep, exactly lithium ion batteries and then uh yeah solar panels to recharge them yeah okay so like each vehicle basically has the solar panels uh, on the vehicle to like charge its own batteries you're not envisioning for the moment any sort of like i don't know centralized uh charging infrastructure like at the south pole or something uh so in terms of the each rover yes can exist independently without without that infrastructure um However, it is our goal to establish that infrastructure. And, and really, you know, we see Flex as kind of the, the first step on a grander vision. Um, and that vision is really, you know, catalyzing the lunar economy. And I, I think key to that will be establishing a power and communications network at the South Pole. Regardless of what activity happens, you know, no, every business needs power, every business needs communications. Um, and, uh, so it's it's our aim to actually on this very first mission in 2026 uh, that that we've contracted with SpaceX is to actually bring a what we call a vertical solar array tower with us and deploy it. So uh, and and this would have a you know a direct to Earth communication as well. So um, you know the idea is you 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 set up a network of these towers and you can provide continuous communication and power in the South Pole region that ultimately supports you know industrial scale activity. And so that's that's a nice segue, sort of from been talking a lot about the tech specs and tech challenges, sort of to the 
quote unquote commercial side, right? Developing the lunar economy, which I think we all want to do. So sort of where, where do you see the, the main use cases for your platform? And I mean, I guess science is obviously one of them, but like what, what other things do you see in that? Which ones are you very excited about? Um, yeah, I mean, so what's interesting is, we, like I said earlier, we, we've signed a number of reservation agreements for our 26 mission already. Uh, what, what's been enlightening is the diversity of you know, business interests from our customers. Um, and uh, I actually, you know, I, I find that comforting because it kind of, you know, uh, it, 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 it's um, some, there's some fault tolerance there <laughs> and that, uh, um, you know, we have a multitude of customers that are interested in, in, in resource utilization, processing, prospecting, et cetera, you know, and, and for a variety of different resources. Some are interested in uh, helium-3, some are interested in, uh, you know, turning regolith into oxygen or metals. Some are interested in the water trapped in the permanently shadowed craters. Um, we have folks who are interested in, in, in data-related um, you know, business, doing mapping, data processing, et cetera. Uh, we have folks in, interested in pure science. Um, we also have you know, folks interested in more kind of uh, the, the, the marketing branding opportunity that this affords. You know, the benefit of what we're doing is that we are a, a purely commercial mission on this 26 mission. It's not, it's not funded by NASA. You know, it's our own capital. It's, you know, um, you know, we're, we're able to, to engage directly with customers, you know, and enable their business dreams uh, with our, with our platform. Um, and uh, so, you know, I, I think, um, you know, in terms of what, you know, the, the lunar economy will ultimately shape up to be, um, it's really, I think it will be a mirror of every way you make money here on earth, right? Uh, and, uh, you know, what, what people don't realize is, you know, the, the, the moon is the size of, has the same surface area as Africa. Mm. Um, you know, now imagine a continent the size of Africa popped up in the Pacific Ocean overnight. Um, you know, we have the means to cross the ocean, right? There would be a mad scramble <laughs> to, you know, uh, to, to uh, explore and, and, and uh, you know, create economic benefit from this new, you know, area that, that, that cropped up overnight. We're, well, that's essentially the situation we're in right now, where the means to get to the moon, to this new, you know, area the size of Africa is being created right now. And it will, it's on the scale of a few years in which, you know, that transfer, that long haul transportation network will, will exist. Um, and, and, uh, you know, so I, I think you, you'll see, um, you know, money being made in all kinds of ways on the moon, just like it's, it's done here on earth. So that's interesting. So actually you're specifically saying it's not space agency customers. Somehow I sort of automatically assume the first customers are going to be space agents, but saying it's actually commercial customers, like private customers, yeah. uh, companies. That are Correct. Or... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Actually, I, th I think, you know, science, pure science is going to be the kind of least um, frequent use of, of our platform is in my estimation, because there's, you know, there's a, there's already kind of a, an existing suite of options for sending small instruments, right? You have all the clips landers, uh, you have the, the, um, sorry, commercial lunar payload services landers, if you're not familiar with that, um, mm -hmm. that are, you know, they're able to deliver 100 kilograms or so to the moon, and they can do it anywhere on the moon, you know, and, and I think there will be a market for doing science, you know, it, on every, you know, uh, every part of the moon, you know, going forward. But our, our focus is really, you know, industrial scale commercial activity, you know, how do you get the equipment to really enable, um, you know, an oxygen production plant, for example, right down down to the surface, set up, maintained, you know, and, and Flex is really designed to do that. Mm -hmm. So since you've obviously, by definition, have thought a lot about sort of mobility in a broad sense on the, on the moon, so how do you see those, the, I know it's a difficult question, the landscape evolving, like, because like I said, there's like the small eclipse rovers, then you have something like Flex, then I mean, there could also be something bigger. I understand there's like the Starship limit, right? But then you could have something that's modular and modules and being assembled. Like maybe you have like some sort of like RV with like a life support system, like kind of like driving around uh, people. There could be, um, it doesn't have to be on wheels, right? It could be, um, I, I guess you can't have like a, a, a helicopter, but obviously there's no atmosphere, but I guess you could have a propulsive popper, right? Do, do you yes. have sort of a vision of how you see the entire lunar mobility scene evolving? What makes sense to have? Yeah, there's a variety of folks looking at hoppers. Um, so the Japanese actually just launched yesterday or maybe the day before uh, a rover and a hopper to the moon that should land in the coming weeks. Um, uh, Intuitive Machines is, has got a hopper that they're working on as well. Um, I think that will have a, a place, um, but um, 
you know, we're, we're really, you know, focused on, you know, what works well here on earth, you know, our, our idea is like, let's not reinvent business, right? Let's, let's take business ideas that are proven here on earth, um, and, and have proven to be economical on earth and just apply them to this, this environment. Um, so, uh, as far as moving even larger equipment, you know, our concept, and you can see this in, in one of the animations we have on our, on our website is you can have multiple flex rovers, um, collaboratively moving, you know, larger equipment, say like a habitation module. And so that, that's the example that we have in our animation is you have two rovers on either end of a kind of, you know, hot dog shaped, uh, habitation module, and they're manipulating it into place and actually performing a docking maneuver to another module. And, you know, really, really, um, you know, I've been in this, uh, business 20 years now. Um, and I, I, I you know, I've gone to, 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 you know, many, many space conferences and seen, you know, untold numbers of, of architectural, you know, presentations. And one thing I've been always frustrated with is, you know, most, most presentations have this kind of, you know, sequence of slides where it's like, you know, you, you have a, a picture of the lander coming down that's kicking up dust. And then the presenter, you know, advances to the next slide and it's like lunar outpost, you know, there's all this stuff set up and, you know, all this different equipment, right? And there's like no explanation of how, you know, what happened between those two slides. And and really Flex is designed to answer that question is how do you get from these, how do you practically get from the real landers we have in development, you know, there's billions of dollars going towards Starship, there's billions of dollars going towards uh, the Blue Origin lander, you know, both from SpaceX and Blue Origin's side, but also NASA's, you know, side. So, you know, tons of capital going into that, that infrastructure. That is the infrastructure we're going to have, right? So it's, to me, it's like, uh, why, why, why kind of design systems that don't work with that, that, you know, the infrastructure that we're going to have, you know, let's focus on practical solutions, given the, the toolkit that we're, we're actually going to have available. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. It always it, it frustrates me as well. Sort of like you sort of like you go from nothing, and then suddenly you have like the lunar city from the expanse or something. And I was like, hang on, like, exactly. Let's go step by step. So, speaking of sort of timelines, um, I, I should have asked you at the very beginning. Can you just briefly summarize, like, like what motivated you to come up with with Astrolab? I mean, you obviously at JPL, as you mentioned, you, you obviously have a lot of experience with planetary rovers, so it does make sense. It's kind of a continuation. But was there any sort of specific aha moment, specific motivation why you? started Astrolab? Sure. Yeah. So, so yeah, I ended up, I spent 10 years at JPL, you know, worked on Mars rovers, uh, worked on, um, during the constellation program, you know, which was NASA's previous program to go back to the moon before Artemis. Um, I worked on a cargo handling robot called athlete. So I was the lead lead engineer on that. Uh, and that was specifically designed for moving large equipment around on the moon. So I've taken a lot of lessons you know, particularly from that experience into what we're doing at Astrolab. Um, after leaving uh, JPL um, in in 2012, uh, after shortly after Curiosity landed, I went to SpaceX and and I ended up spending seven seven years there. Um, and I I was uh, I, in charge of the Dragon spacecraft mechanisms team. So we developed uh, the docking system for Dragon that. It, uh, docks to ISS with uh, hatches, nose cone, things like that. Um, and uh, after it successfully docked to ISS, I started kind of dabbling around on different projects in SpaceX, looking for kind of my next thing. And uh, so I spent a little bit of time on Starship uh, in, in the kind of earlier engineering of Starship. And um, it was really just the the realization that man, if if Starship works, and I have every confidence that it will, you know, I like I having spent seven years there, I know the quality of that team and the, the tenacity of the team to really push through anything. Um, you know, uh, his, history is, 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 is littered with people who doubted SpaceX's ability to pull off these ambitious things. Mm. Uh, so yeah. uh, I have, uh, uh, every confidence that they're going to make it. Um, and, um, it was really, you know, the realization that, Hey, this really does change the equation, uh, in space. It, it, you know, I think I think we're going to look back on this period, you know, kind of like the way we look back on the iPhone, right? There's like you talk about time and in, in terms of pre-iPhone and post-iPhone, you know, time. You know, I think there's a similar kind of singularity here, you know, that's going to happen in, in, that will refer to the post, you know, pre and post Starship, you know, world. And um, so I decided to 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 leave SpaceX to start Astrolab. Um, we 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 were founded in uh, January 2020, which 
you know, pandemic started good a couple time, months good later. Timing, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that was tough, but, um, you know, we've, we've grown steadily, you know, since founding and, um, have, uh, you know, uh, we've signed the first, uh, commercial contract to go to the moon with, with Starship. Um, and, uh, you know, I think we're, we're in really good position to, to be part of NASA's lunar terrain vehicle services program. So we're, we're having, uh, um, uh, a lot of, a lot of success so far. And, uh, you know, I mentioned we, we built a full scale terrestrial prototype as well. Um, but yeah, it was really just the realization that, wow, that, you know, if Starship works, um, you know, it really changes what's possible. It changes the economics of it. Um, and, uh, you know, and so it was really the allure of the opportunity that, that, that I, I see unfolding. Yeah. Okay. So in terms of timeline, I think you mentioned already, um, first flight with a vehicle 2026. So this is obviously startup dependent, but you know, I tend to be with you that this will work and hopefully it's going to be an orbital flight test, uh, in the next uh, few weeks we'll see. And then if this all starts working out, I mean, what's your vision? Where do you see the company in like, I don't know, 10 years or 15 years, whatever the right time frame is. Yeah, the kind of the, the way I like to put it is, you know, we're we're starting with last mile logistics, right? So, you know, the kind of like UPS for the moon, right? And then um shortly thereafter, we hope to be providing mobility services to the Artemis astronauts. So that's like the Uber of the moon. Um, and then, you know, like I, I was saying earlier, our one of our goals, even from the the get-go here, is to start establishing the core infrastructure at the South Pole. So setting up the power grid, the communications grid that will be the underpinning or the catalyst for the lunar economy. Um and so, you know, that takes us from being UPS slash Uber to being ATT and standard oil of the moon. So nothing short of total lunar domination is, uh, is where, where we see ourselves. <laughs> until, until we reach that lunar uh, infrastructure of uh, the expanse or something similar like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we'll talk about sci-fi in a second. So as we're winding down here, sort of we always ask the same type of questions uh, at the end of every episode. So one is, um, are you guys hiring right now? In which case we will put your, um, the, the link the episode yes. out. Yeah, we're hiring for a variety of roles right now. Yes. Okay, we'll put that in the, in the episode notes so people can check it out. And then one thing I always ask is, um, okay, so Rover's super exciting, um, but you obviously have a good view of space in general. I mean, you're at JPL, you're at SpaceX. If for some reason you weren't working on Astrolab, like what else do you find exciting in space right now? Um, what else do I find exciting in space? I mean, I I, I am uh, really jazzed about all the um, the commercial activities. So the you know the the commercial space stations, um, commercial Leo destinations program. Um, um, you know, it's to NASA's credit, like the 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 approach that they've been taking the last you know ten years or so, where they're really stepping back from owning and operating vehicles to really procuring services. Um, that whole model of um, you know allowing companies to solve problems that ultimately can serve NASA, but also opens up the door for them to solve those same problems for commercial paying customers or other foreign agencies or, or whoever. Um, I think is 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 brilliant and obviously has been extraordinarily effective to date. And uh, you know I really commend them for for you know leaning in that direction. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, to me, that really is what's going to unlock the, the kind of sci-fi future, right. Is, is it's really when, um, commercial activity hits an inflection point and, uh, the government support, you know, the government doesn't need to be the primary customer mm. anymore. Do you, this is going to be a really difficult question and, and I don't have a good answer for it. Do you, do you have sort of a view on the quote unquote, first killer app for the moon? Like, is it like tourism? Is it some sort of resource extraction or something else we don't even imagine right now? Yeah, I think, um, I think a compelling, a really compelling, um, you know, use case uh, for lunar resources is, is, um, is the rocket fuel. Um, you know, you can dramatically reduce <laughs> the amount of fuel you need to bring with you. Uh, uh, you know, uh, on, on, on liftoff off of the moon, you know, you're looking at something like 80% of the mass being oxygen, uh, for, for a vehicle. Uh, so if you can, um, you know, produce that oxygen, you know, at the, at the South pole, 
mm, you can from the ice, yeah, yeah, um, or yeah. even just from the 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 bulk regolith. The bulk regolith has oxygen in it. Yeah, you're right. It's like more of like molten regolith electrolysis. Yeah. yeah. So Good yeah, point. I think that's exciting. You know, I think I think the um, I think the helium three play is really interesting. You know, you have you know it's it's kind of kind of stacking you know um, really technically difficult things on top of each other, but you know, you are, you have a multitude of startups, you know, here in, in the U S and, and worldwide who are now working on, on, on fusion. Um, almost <laughs> all of them, you know, would probably agree that, Hey, if we had helium three, it would be better than, than what we're, we're, we're planning to use. Um, it's just, you can't, you know, access it really at all on earth. So, um, you know, I think, you know, exporting relatively small quantities, um, uh, uh, of helium three back to earth, and the moon is really, really compelling. But again, that's that's assuming the fusion <laughs> businesses work out themselves, you know. So yeah, that's there's sort of like a path of dependency. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for yeah. sure. And so the, the the last question we always ask is always the same, which is about um science fiction and you know, whether you like science fiction and if so, um, you know, some examples of favorite science fiction that we already or I already mentioned the expanse with the moon cities. I mean, there's obviously a lot of um science fiction that has the moon. It's funny of the vehicles, the one thing I thought about also was um I'm sure you've seen Ad Astra, right? The Brad Pitt. And they at some point in time, Actually, the I haven't watched the it. Yeah, I have not. Uh, but uh, oh, you have not? Okay, there's there's a there's a scene at the beginning before he kind of goes off onto Mars. They're on the moon, and it's sort of like a Wild West environment. And there's like a like literally like a car chase. Yeah. I have like seen that clip. The, the gunfight. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I was like that. It, it, that's that seems like they're driving too fast. I'm not sure people are going to be driving that fast on the moon, but you know, anyway. But anyway, coming back to your preferences on science fiction. Um, yeah, I always, I, I was a big fan, fan of, uh, Star Trek next generation when I was growing mm. up. Um, I wouldn't call myself a Trekkie in, in, in general, but, um, I, I really, I, I really still resonate with the whole idea of, you know, the, the kind of founding idea of Star Trek is that they're in a period where it's past the end of scarcity. You know, it's like, there's no money because you can just push a button and food comes out of a machine. And, um, you know, that's the kind of. Uh, best case scenario, I think, for this period we're we're entering into, where AI is really taking off, you know, is that um, you know maybe we'll 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 end up with probably through after a very rough patch, uh, a society in which uh, you know there is no scarcity and we're free to really just explore the universe. You know that that was always uh, I think a really neat neat vision for the future. Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 a nice note uh, to end on, and we're, we're cheering for that. And yeah, we certainly want to see um, developing lunar economy, lots of uh, things uh, driving around. So, Jared, thank you so much for coming on today. All the best for for Astrolab, and we're watching your development with curiosity. Thank you, thank you for having me, and uh, yeah, and I really uh, enjoyed this conversation. Well, that's it for another nominal episode of the Space Business Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider giving it a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Also consider supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. If the podcast got you interested in learning more about the business opportunities in the space economy, check out my new online course on space entrepreneurship on udemy.com. The link is in the episode description. Lastly, if you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself if you have an exciting space story to tell or interested in being a sponsor, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to seeing you for the next episode.